So Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together again on this Lord's Day, and we pray that you will um, open our hearts and our minds as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, that we would perceive and understand what it is you'd have to say to us, your church. And uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 today still. Um, If you remember correctly, uh, we've seen that Hebrews has basically a structure that moves between um, various reflections on comparing Jesus to entities such as angels, and then we have Moses, and and then it will move from these reflections into what's technically called an exordium or an exhortation. Because this is the case, then therefore you think and feel and and uh, live into this and this and that way. We're in the section now in chapter 3, verses 1 through 510, where we see an emphasis on Christ who's faithful and merciful. He's our faithful and merciful high priest, where we'll see this theme repeat itself again and again. Now, uh, last week we did chapters 3, verses 1 to 6, that compares Jesus and Moses. And then we saw uh, verses 7 to 11, where there's a testing from the wilderness uh, episode that's recounted. So we are taken into the book of Numbers, for lack of a better better, uh, place. Um, We're going into the book of Numbers to see what happened with the people of Israel at a place like Kadesh Barnea. And you remember, you remember this. I mean, for those of you who have children, you know what it's like for poor Moses, right? I mean, they, um, they're there in the land of Egypt. They have seen the promises and the blessings of God. They, and then their memories got rather short about how bad life was back in Egypt. And, you know, we think we'd like a one-way train ticket back to Egypt, if you don't mind, Moses. And Moses didn't seem to go along with that very well. Neither did God. I didn't like that, so all of a sudden now there's snakes around biting people. I mean, it's uh, it's not a fun time there in the wilderness, which is significant with what we heard about this morning, uh, and, and even in our our sermon and in the and in the liturgical the lectionary readings. I mean, Jesus goes into the wilderness for forty days and for forty nights. That's pretty important timing, isn't it? Now that number forty is significant uh, when we think of it in comparison to what Israel, as Israel lived 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus is Israel embodied. So Jesus is. Jesus is being for Israel and for the world what Israel cannot be for themselves or for the world. Right? They're called in Genesis chapter 12 to be a blessing to all of the nations. They're given a missional charge so that Israel's elections not merely a privilege to be enjoyed, it's also a responsibility to be performed. And as we move on in the very torturous history of Israel, what we see is that Israel becomes a a garment, a coat, and a closet waiting for someone to put it on. So when Jesus goes under the water and comes out to fulfill all righteousness, He's putting this Israel coat on. To be Israel, for Israel and for the nations, He's being the light to the Gentiles, Isaiah chapter 49, that Israel could never be because of their long and and complicated history with sin and and failure. It's not an accident that Paul and the author to the Hebrews will often appeal to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and all the mess that they made of it there to function as a challenge to the church right now. 
And the challenge goes something like this. Yeah, we'll put it in, in our terms, right? Uh, don't think you're better. I mean, don't, don't think that because of where you are in your location in God's redemptive plan, that you're really in all that better of a state than they were. I mean, think about what Israel had enjoyed in their very near memory, salvation memory. They had seen the angel, the death angel, come through. And their children were fine, and Pharaoh's children were not. They saw all that. They saw the Red Sea split. They saw manna just show up, whatever that strange marshmallow mixed with, I don't know what it was, but it sure was very good. I think of them as sort of marshmallowy things. I don't know what they were. Um, but whatever the manna was, they saw it every morning. And there they go and they gather up their manna. And God was providing for them in ways that we sort of feel like, I don't know if you feel this way, but I can get on my own moral high horse and think, you know, if I saw God involved that palpably in my world, I mean, if I walked out into my backyard every morning, and there was some food that I knew that God had brought. I feel that a little bit with my chickens. I've got chickens in our backyard. So they're starting to lay eggs again. I've, I've, I've been very angry at them. They've been molting for a couple of months. And so we've been, not been on speaking terms. Even Naomi's like, have you been feeding them? I'm like, tomorrow they'll get their food. I, I need my eggs, right? Um, but they're, start, they're starting to produce again. So I guess that's a little... But, you know, they're chickens. They lay their eggs. Manna just shows up. God is palpably providing for them. And um, I, I sort of feel at times if that were the case in our own sphere, where we knew that in some supernatural way, beyond the, any recourse to natural reason or law, that God was doing things, that I would be sort of better off. Let, let's just go ahead and put it right out before us. The Bible from beginning to end, witnesses with a very, very loud and unified voice that that is not the case. Proximity to these historical realities of God's providential and sovereign and gracious actions in time that people see do not necessarily in and of themselves lead toward any kind of redemptive and salvific change in a person's heart. I mean, think about uh, Israel in the wilderness. Think about Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, that John's gospel is loaded with this. They want a sign. Okay, so Jesus does crazy things. Turning people who can't see into allowing them to see. People who can't walk, now they can walk. Water is all of a sudden wine. And not just wine, but a pretty decent vintage, right? I mean, all of this is happening in... It's hard for them to believe. And what you get begin to see in John's Gospel, and other Gospels as well, but especially John's, is as time goes on, the disciples seem to whittle down to a smaller and smaller and smaller number. Number, I take that as a sort of example to all of us. Never invite Jesus to a church growth seminar, right? I mean, Jesus knows how to whittle down a church fast, right? Um, and so this is the, 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 the challenge that we have from Paul and in Hebrews is... Um, you stand in a particular place in God's economy that's much better than manna picking up off the ground. 
It's much better than a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The very Shekinah glory of God present in their midst. It's even better than that. I wouldn't mind a cloud every once in a while or a big old pillar of fire. That'd be pretty awesome. But here the author to the Hebrews is saying the moment that you're located in in the divine economy is way better. It's superior. Matter of fact, it's so superior that it doesn't even compare with what came before. Why? Because in previous days he spoke in various and sundry ways by the prophets to the fathers, but in these last days it's God's very Son that has spoken to us. God Himself has enfleshed Himself entering into the world of time and space to draw reluctant humanity back into Himself and to redeem you and me, but not just to redeem you and me, but to bring this cosmic order that's all whacked out because of sin back into a cosmic order again. It's, I mean, my, I'm so glad that I'm redeemed. I tend to think of salvation often from the standpoint of my little story. I get to go to heaven. I'm really glad about that. But the Apostle Paul and the author of the Hebrews as well often pushes us beyond our small narrative to say it's not just about you, it's about humanity, and it's also about the world and the universe. Rocks and trees and mountains. I don't know how it all works. Romans 8, Colossians 1, very clear that the atoning work of Jesus spills out to actually bring back the cosmic order itself back into the way that it should be because of the fall of, of sin and the way in which sin has wreaked havoc on the cosmic order itself. And so we're, we're in that. We, we're living in that moment. And what we're being challenged from Hebrews, and Paul does it in 1 Corinthians 10 as well, is, by the way, take note. Remember the story back there in the wilderness. It's written for your account. We have it still in the Bible and our canonical scriptures as a continuing witness for you to remember that what? Well, people can stand right in the face of the powerful saving presence of God and want to go back to Egypt. And still want to go back to Egypt. So here's the challenge that we had last week in verses 7 to 11. And then it moves right into verse 12. This is where we want to talk a little bit today. Verse 12 through chapter 4, verse um, 11 and 12 as well. Okay. Um, okay, you're good. Take care, brethren. And I'll just go ahead and make this a little more gender inclusive. Brethren and sistren. That doesn't always work as well. <laughs> Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, I want to keep that before you. An evil, unbelieving heart. And what is an evil, unbelieving heart going to do? It's going to lead you away to fall from the living God. So here's the challenge. Remember what happened in Kadesh Barnea. Remember the grumbling in the wilderness. Remember your own predilection toward that kind of life. But take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But here's the challenge. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Now tuck that word away somewhere, because that's an important word for the author to the Hebrews here in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Today, right? We're going to be moving and talking about the future, but the future has radical implications for today. So what are we to do? How are we to encourage one another from an unbelieving and evil heart. Well, we're to exhort one another. We're to challenge one another. 
We're to talk to one another. In other words, we need one another. This Pandora stuff is awesome. Do you like it? I mean, I love it. Free music. I'll have to listen to a few ads every once in a while. Bring it. I'll do it any day of the week. Um, I like to listen to the Simon Garfunkel every once in a while, right? You like that one too? Uh-huh. All right. I like to listen to that. It gets me in touch with my, I don't know, hippie side. Um, I'm, 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 that's, I don't have that side. Uh, but, um, yeah. Uh, but you listen, you know, the, I am a rock. I am an island, you know that, right? I mean, here I think the author of the Hebrews is saying, you're not a rock, you're not an island, okay? You're not that. (laughs) I think that's how Eugene Peterson would have translated this in the message if he had a chance, right? You're a rock, you're not a rock, You're you're not an island. You need other people. You need the community of faith. Um, I, I find, you know, you, and you'll meet, um, I'm going to soapbox here a little bit, but you've all met folks like this. And maybe left to ourselves, we might have our own instincts to go this way as well. I don't know. But the people who are like, I just can't find a church in Birmingham, Alabama that I think is really very good. So we, we, have a, we just meet as a family together on Sunday morning. It's like, you know, I, that stuff, I have enough of this little key, little C Catholic side of me to get real nervous about that kind of thing. It makes me nervous. Why? Because we need one another. We're called to exhort and to encourage. And what does Paul say in Galatians 6 is the bearing, I mean, it's the fulfilling of the law of Christ. How do you fulfill Christ's law? You fulfill Christ's law by what? Bearing one another's burdens. And so fulfilling the law of Christ. Remembering one another. I'll remember you to the Father. One of the great experiences that I get to have at Beeson Divinity School where I teach um, is every every professor is, is assigned a mentoring group. So we have seven, eight, nine, ten students. I've got them. I've got nine this semester. I've had them now for a couple of years and all these people. And they come into my office every Thursday at 11 o'clock. We sit around. We laugh. We cut up. And we pray. We share with one another what's going on. And it's amazing to find out how during the week these students come to mind. Oh, yes, Sam is about to graduate and he doesn't have a call yet. Doesn't know what he's going to do in the ministry yet. Oh, Lord, remember Sam. Um, and Wyatt, his mother and father, have just gone through a pretty rough divorce and the family dynamic is all off kilter. Remember Wyatt. And, and the list goes on and on and on. I mean, that because we are in community and we're praying for one another. Here's the, the apostle to the Hebrews who's writing to them saying, you need to exhort one another. Why? Today, we need one another so that we don't fall into an unbelieving heart. I think, by the way, that's one of the benefits, too, of, of for those of you, and not everyone is in this category, but for those of you who have a spouse, right? Well, there's a, a nice opportunity that God has put right into your living room, literally in your bedroom, uh, someone right there to remind you um, that the gospel's true. We need to be talking to one another that way. Well, I could, we can go on and on. Why? So that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin's deceit, uh, the cunning of sin. Um, I, I was uh, uh, listening to a Tim Keller sermon this week. I guess everyone and their mother listens to these sermons, and I and I get it. I mean, I understand why. He's a very, very good speaker. Although I have to say, I'm, uh, this is off record, but I've never heard Paul Walker before. I listened to him. Uh, I wasn't here Thursday, but I listened to him. Is it uncanny how much they 
Walker and Keller son? Did they go to the same school or what? I often found it be actually uncanny how similar they sound in presentations. Anyway, that's a side point. Um, but I was listening to a sermon by Keller. Keller was doing, uh, was doing a reflection on Psalm 63. It's very, very good. Oh God, my God, I earnestly seek after you. All about the affections of our heart. Because we do believe, or at least I believe, even though I realize that the Christian life is marked by seasons. Dark night of the soul, difficulty in prayer, difficulty in relating to God, difficulty in relating to others, moments of ecstasy and joy. I mean, welcome to the book of Psalms, right? I mean, our lives are met by the, all the emotional complexity that the book of Psalms provides us. But Keller said one of the things that really can quench your affection and appetite for God is when you seek to meet those affections and appetites elsewhere. It'll dull the senses and the appetite and the desire for God when we try to find other things that will fill these deep cravings that we have in our hearts. In C.S. Lewis's language, it's what Lewis said is um, playing in the mud um, and thinking that that's satisfying when God has offered us a holiday at the ocean, right? We're sitting and playing in mud puddles when He said, you can come to Me and have the ocean. Um, sin is deceitful. Sin lies. I mean, the, what, what, what's the, how does the Scripture say it? The pleasures of sin are for what? They're for a season. But that's real life pleasure, Right? But it's for a season. It promises way more than it can offer. Bite this fruit and you can be like God. Okay, I think I will. Only to find out that in being like God, they came to a knowledge of their sinful state, not the sort of omnipotence they were after in being like God. And so sin, I mean, this, I, and I'm not sure we talk about this enough. I'm not sure I talk enough to myself about this, but, but sin is a lie. That's what it is. It's a lie. It's deceitful. It promises something that it never offers. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a chimera. It's fake. It's unreal. Um, th- this is why some of the theologians in the history of the church treated evil and sin as nothingness. In other words, it doesn't even have its own material entity. Sin is the opposite of good, and only good really exists. Sin is just not even there. It's what Karl Barth says, the impossible possibility. It's this, it's false. It's a lie. And here, the author of the Hebrews is saying, we need one another to remind ourselves, to encourage one another that sin is deceitful. It's lying. I mean, I, I've, I've, you all know it. Right? I mean, I'll just use one illustration, the marriage illustration, but they go multiple places. But you've met these people, haven't you? Friends, I'm sure. Family members. 15 years of marriage, 20 years of marriage, 25. And they're like, I'm done. And you'll ask why. This happened to a, a dear friend of mine over the past four years. I remember having this conversation. One of those sort of shocking moments. Like, what? Your marriage? And the answer was... Um, we're not happy and, and, not, and we feel like we've lost uh, or we've missed the happiness train and we're going to go find it. And I was like, you know, that sort of thing. And I, I mean, my wife and I joke about this. We were with a couple this week at dinner talking about this. Like, I just, who believes that? I just don't understand it. This is hard. I mean, I, I get it. I, I get the sort of moral side. I get the danger, the sexual side. I can understand all of that. But to actually think that you can go 
and involve yourself emotionally into a commitment of marriage to another person and that all of a sudden your problems are going to go away? Who really believes it? You're just going to trade one set for another. It's like jumping from the firing pan into the skillet. I just, it's, it's hard for me to conceive of. Why? Because, as we all know this, right? When you run away from some relationship that you feel, what do you take with you? Yourself, right? You can't get, you're still taking you. Um, so all to say, we need to remind ourselves about the deceitfulness of sin. That was a rant. I'm sorry about that. Well, um, the last verse of chapter 3, or the last two verses, and to whom he did swear that they should never enter into his rest because of their disobedience, so that we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now, that's a very interesting conjoining of thoughts right here. Why? Apostle to the Hebrews here, why did they not enter into the promised land of rest on the far, those, that initial generation? Why? Because of their disobedience. Hmm. And uh, next verse. And what was their disobedience? The disobedience is identified as their unbelief. Right? That's fascinating to me. Because, I, again, I think we tend to think of obedience and disobedience primarily in moral categories. And there are moral categories that have to do with obedience and disobedience. But what the author to the Hebrews is pressing forward in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is that the kind of disobedience that was on display in the wilderness is a disobedience of unbelief. An unwillingness in the face of the promises of God to redeem and save, no matter the complexity of the moment, to believe and to affirm that what God says in His promises to us, salvifically, redemptively, that they are true despite current circumstances, despite boring manna one more day. Despite the fact that we haven't quite settled into the place that we thought we'd be at this point in time. All the mitigating circumstances of life that come our way. Here, the author to the Hebrews is saying very clearly, the problem of disobedience in the wilderness was a disobedience of unbelief. An unwillingness to believe that God's redemptive promises are true. What did God say? I will take you and I will bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. What do we see in the book of Joshua? I will fight for you. And the twelve, you, know, you remember this, for those of you who grew up in church, like the kind of church I grew up in, the, the song about the twelve spies of Canaan, ten were bad and two were good. I can't remember the tune, right? Then they go in and then all these twelve spies come back and them like, no, we did the numbers, we kind of ran the, uh, we ran the numbers, we did the algorithms and uh, we're, we're going to lose. So we shouldn't fight them. And Caleb and Joshua are like, we can fight them, right? God is on our side. Now, this is the, who are we? That's the whole, at the core of Israel's redemptive history and their whole history as a nation. Will you believe that God's redemptive promises are true? He said he'll fight for you. Are you going to believe him or not? So then you come to chapter four. Chapter four. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, very crucial term here, his rest remains. Let us fear. Strong language here from the author to the Hebrews. Let us fear, lest any of you be judged to have failed to reach it. 
For good news, that was a great turn of phrase here. Good news came to us just as it did to them. Well, what's the good news? This is the gospel good news. They had a gospel message. God will fight for you. We have a gospel message. God has fought for you. The atoning work of Jesus is God's demonstration. It's our Red Sea moment. It's God saying, you all stand to the side and I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to do this for you. And I'm not just going to do it for you in a human agent. I'm going to do it for you in a human agent who's fully human and fully my son, God himself. I'm going to actually bring the fight for your soul and your redemption and your humanity into my very eternal existence. And I'm going to make an eternal decree of redemption that goes back to whenever time began where I have decided within my own self-decision-making to be a God for you in this particular way. So stand to the side and watch me fight for you. Because you're going to enter into my rest. You're going to enter into a perpetual reality of my seventh-day experience of creation. And on the seventh day, He rested. Do you want to enter into my rest? Do you want to come into the promised land? I've done it for you. I've redeemed you. I've given you my, my Son. Verse 3, For we who have believed entered that rest, as He said, I swore in my wrath they shall never enter my rest. For He has spoken somewhere. I love how He says this, by the way, quite often. It shows the power of memory uh, in the first century world. I won't chase that rabbit. Um, but the power of memory in the first century world, uh, the way in which Scripture, this, this person, this apostle knew their Bible. Somewhere it says this, and then somewhere it says this. Not doing these sort of rough quotations, but you can tell that the Scriptures are saturating of the author to the Hebrews. Um, you know, I'd love to talk about that. Go on. Um, and God rested, it said, somewhere. We'll just go ahead and say Genesis 1. That was kind of an easy one. I'm not sure he said that one. But Genesis 1, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, he said, they shall never enter into my rest. Those who were recalcitrant, disobedient, unbelie unbelieving. Verse 7, again, he sets a certain day. Well, what day? It's today. Saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted. This is in Psalm 95 again. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I, I'm going to read these next three verses and then we'll talk. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later of another day. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever enters God's rest also ceases from his labors as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest that no one fall by the same sort of disobedience. I mean, what's he saying here? The promise of entering into God's rest that was promised to the Israelites in the ancient days, right, in the patriarchal days, that promise was a promise that was proleptically looking forward to God's ultimate rest offered to us in His Son. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the term here that's being used of Sabbath, of course, is drawing on the Sabbath principle from the Old Testament itself, but it's doing so in a way that's looking forward to the future. Will you enter into God's rest? Will you stand on the far side of the promised land and enter into God's rest? Well, what keeps someone out? The disobedience that's marked by disbelief, by unbelief. 
This is the challenge that's being written to this second generation of Christians here. The author knows trial and temptations are coming. And in fact, the trial and temptations that are coming are the ones that might actually cost you your life. But you're on the plains of Moab. You're looking into the promised land. God has promised you a perpetual rest in Himself. A rest that will last forever. You all, you're all the Anglican types here. I mean, you know the requiems well enough, right? May light eternal shine on them. May rest perpetual shine on them. This is the kind of thing that we find enormous comfort from when we're standing at a graveside, whether the timing seems right or the timing seems all wrong. You stand at a graveside and what do you confess? That they've entered into His rest. You know, you you ask people this. I mean, some of you are effervescent, bubbly people. Good for you. I like effervescent, bubbly people. Some of you are introverted and maybe not so bubbly and effervescent. Don't don't always attach, by the way, spirituality to those things, right? We're just hardwired in different ways sometimes. Um, and uh, but you know you you see you talk somebody look a little haggard. Well, I, I, I've got a, a, I shouldn't say this, but I've got a colleague I could just you know ask how's it going. I answer every time I'm tired. Right. <laughs> I'm tired. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, what do we want from in our tiredness? We want rest. And what are our lives marked by? I mean, the author of the Hebrews gets it. That's why it's so palpably in our front yards. What are our lives marked by in the goodness, in the joy, and in the sorrow? We're tired. We labor. But what's the word that he uses in verse 11? It's a good word. It's an Old Testament word. We're striving. This life is marked by striving, by wrestling, by um, um, a continual wrangling with all the complexities of the plates that we're spinning in our lives, but also in our faith. Our faith is a dynamic faith. That's why, and you all know this enough around here, this is one of the great gifts of being at a church like Advent. We announce this, or it's announced around here all the time. The lost people need the gospel and Christian kind of people need the gospel. We need to be reminded again and again that it's true that we're standing on the plains of Moab and that the way has already been paved for us into the promised land of rest because of the finished work of the person of of our Savior. So we're tired We yearn for rest. And here is where the author to the Hebrews says, you're standing there. Believe. Strive in your belief. Um, I've I've mentioned it before, but I'll, I'll close with it today again. The whole, I'm convinced of this, the whole of our Christian lives is a wrestling match. All of it is a wrestling match. I don't think I always believe that. I certainly don't wish it were true. I wish it were different than that. I wish it were smooth sailing. Um, I wish it was a canoe ride down a nice stream. But it's more like a trip down the Nantahala, I think, right? Um, or the Ocoee, for those of you who've done these white water ones. I, I took a youth group, I don't know, some 15 years ago now, down the Ocoee River. It was a disaster. You remember that, Naomi, right? I mean, this is like when you go down the Nantahala, they let you guide yourself, no problem. We had a guide. I mean, when you go down the Ocoee, they make you have a professional guide. You're going down. And our guide got so angry with our group. I mean, just everyone steer. I mean, it was just horrible, right? I mean, the, the Christian life is the, is the, is the Ocoee. That's not saying there aren't times that are marked by nice ripples and you kind of have a little respite here or there. But you know that the class four rapid's going to come. It's coming. And I think the author to the Hebrews here knows that it's coming for this second generation group as well. 
And we know that actually in retrospect, we'll name it Diocletian. Okay? The emperor brought an enormous amount of suffering and trial and persecution to Christians. And it's quite likely that this group of Christians here faced that. It's very possible. Especially if they were in Rome, which many th- people think they were. And so here he's saying, you're on the plains of Moab. And we are marked as children of the promise. We have been given all the promises that God can give in His Son. And when you come to the rapids of life and the difficulties of life, we're called not to obedience, and we all call to obedience, but the call here is to an obedience that's marked by belief. I will hold fast to the promises of God. I will say by His grace, though I'm weeping and crying and sorrowing, but I will say at the graveside, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life, and the life eternal, even if I'm having to clench at the ground while I do it. Right. That's the sort of picture that's here. Are you going to stand in a place of belief because of the belief that He's planted in your heart and because of what He's demonstrated for you on the cross in His Son? The stakes are high in the book of Hebrews. They're high stakes. It's an all-or-nothing game. It's all-or-nothing. And the call here is, as you're standing on the front end um, of, or on the plains of Moab, is to look to the author and to the finisher of your faith. I wanted to do this. I don't have time now. But where does he go next? The Word of God. It's sharp. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. What does it do? It divides the spirit and the soul. It cuts down into the very marrow of who we are. And then the next verse says, and no one can escape God's presence. He knows the intentions of your heart. He knows the frailty of your faith. He knows the paltry character of your belief. That's what I think the author is saying here. The Word of God cuts. It is not neutral. It cuts. And this is setting me up for next week. And where does he go right after he emphasizes the all-seeing eye of God who knows not just, as I heard Paul Walker say this week, not just the rending of our garments. God also knows about the rending of our hearts, right? I love how Walker said that this week. I'm going to give up greed for Lent. That's right. But we're getting down to the heart of things right now. God knows the intentions of our hearts. And where does it leave us? Next verse. And we have a high priest who's been, not, who's been touched by the infirmity of our flesh. And he knows how to intercede for us. So that's where we'll go next week. So Father, I don't know where my friends here are in their trip down the Ocoee with you. Um, but I pray, God, that you will plant in our hearts belief, Lord. And Lord, we know that this Christian life is marked by a struggle with belief. Even John the Baptist, the night before he died, asked if you were the real one. And Lord, the disciples said, we believe, but help our unbelief. That's how we are, Lord. We're asking you that. And we know in your all-seeing eye that you know the intentions of our heart, the frailty of our faith. And Lord, our recalcitrant spirits, you know them. But I pray, Lord, that You'll plant belief in our hearts to know that Your promises are true even when everything around us screams that that cannot be the case. And Lord, I'd be remiss this morning if I didn't lift up the Coptic church in Egypt. They're living in Hebrews 3 and 4. 21 of their own sons and husbands killed on a beach just for being Christians. And so, Lord, I do pray for the fledgling and flailing 
Christian church in the Middle East now that, Lord, You will let them, Lord, hold on to the belief and know that they have a high priest. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.